episode four of The Tar Sands Diplomat, a Canadian satirical diplomatic thriller set at the Canadian mission to the European Union in Brussels, involving big oil, Russian oligarchs, and our friends at the Prime Minister's office back in Ottawa. It's read by the author, Keith Halliday. For more information, visit keithhalliday.com or check out the book's reviews on Amazon. If you like the podcast, please share it with your friends. Neither Big Oil nor any Russian oligarchs are helping Keith market this podcast. Now, here's Keith Halliday with Episode 4. The Tar Sands Diplomat, Chapter 5. I reacquaint myself with Brussels. The weekend passed pleasantly. They always do in Brussels. The city has dedicated itself to providing fine meals and pleasant walks in the park to its large population of politicians and diplomats. And on the weekend, all the bureaucrats who make weekday Brussels so tiresome are strolling through the city with smiles on their faces. As long as you don't have a brush with Belgian customer service in a shop, there's nothing better for the nerves than a Brussels weekend. On Saturday, I slept in, and once the after-effects of too much champagne had worn off, I left the hotel and sauntered contentedly to a glorious breakfast at La Quincaillerie. This is the café run by Bertrand, the finest pâtissier I have ever met. I've been a proud member of his Christmas card list since my first posting in Brussels. When I walked in the door, we had a teary and cream-filled reunion. Then I took a tram out to the Belgian Royal Museum for Central Africa. It's a funny sort of museum, about what used to be called the Belgian Congo. The collection is heavy on Stanley and Livingston, with lots of pictures of excited villagers waving as various Belgian royals visit the happy colony. It's a bit light on the heart of darkness side of the Belgian experience in Africa. Joseph Conrad would have wanted more interpretive panels about King Leopold's men cutting off workers' hands if they missed their daily rubber quota. The true Congo purist might also regret the lack of detail on the CIA-backed assassination of Patrice Lumumba, the first post-independence president, and the subsequent installation of the brutal and insanely corrupt Mobutu, whose stalwart anti-communism extended to building a palace in the jungle with a runway long enough to accommodate Air France's Concorde whenever he felt like chartering it. It makes you wonder about recent Canadian corruption scandals involving senators padding their housing allowances or ministers billing the taxpayer for $16 orange juices in London hotels. Are Canadian politicians really so clean, or have only the least imaginative ever been caught? On Sunday, my body clock woke me at 6 in the morning. I wondered if I should have taken melatonin or one of those miracle jet lag drugs that everyone talks about. I didn't really mind, however, since it would give me time to have a few espressos and read Bertrand's copy of La Libre Belgique to catch up on the antics of the Belgian royal family. But first, to stretch my legs and work off the jet lag, I walked to the mission through Parc de la Cinquantenaire. Brussels was as I remembered it. There was lots of charming Art Nouveau architecture to admire, largely paid for by those Congolese rubber quotas. You just had to look down often enough to avoid the landmines left on the sidewalk by Brussels' large number of lapdogs. I was dreaming absentmindedly of Bertrand's pan au chocolat when I rounded a corner and bumped into Cornelia. My blissful patisserie reverie shattered painfully, like the time that bottle of Veuve Clicquot fell out of the freezer and broke a metatarsal bone in my foot. I mumbled my greetings and made to escape, when something in her manner made me stop. Even at point-blank range, she didn't seem to recognize me. She muttered, excusez-moi, with a French immersion accent, and walked away slowly as if dazed. She was wearing dark sunglasses, and her clothes were more rumpled than usual. I noticed that one of her large metallic earrings was missing, and that her left heel was loose, making her wobble slightly as she walked. She looked like she'd been hit by one of those Belgian delivery vans that drive on the sidewalk. Cornelia, I said, snapping my fingers in front of her face. Are you all right? 
She turned and blinked at me, as if I had just materialized. I watched her eyes focus on me. Her expression was bewildered at first, then puzzled, and finally turned hostile. Oh, great, she muttered. I was about to ask her what was wrong when a tall, athletic blonde woman wearing a UBC Thunderbirds volleyball shirt bounded up beside us. She was a few years younger than Cornelia, and at least six inches taller, and was wearing distractingly tight running gear. She pulled her earphones out of her ears and smiled. Hi, Cornelia. Did you like the party last night? Cornelia grunted affirmatively as the blonde woman kept jogging in place. And thanks for taking me to La Morsubite. It ruled. Those Belgian beers sure are dangerous. This only seemed to make Cornelia wince. Cornelia seemed incapacitated, so I introduced myself. Awesome. Nice to meet you, said the young woman, shaking my hand vigorously as she kept jogging. I'm Ilya Yon's daughter, the new intern at the Canadian Mission, or stagiaire, like everyone seems to say in Brussels. I'm in my final year of economics at UBC. I took Cornelia and Julian to the commission's stagiaire party last night. The embassy stagiaires get an honorary invite. Brussels stagiaire parties are legendary. The internship program at the European institutions is one of the most sought-after university jobs on the continent. The brightest, or best-connected, young people in each member state spend a few months in Brussels, partying like pop stars by night and photocopying with hangovers during the day. Lilia punched Cornelia in the arm. I'll tell you when the photos get posted. I've never danced in a cage before, she said enthusiastically. I noticed Cornelia wince again at the word photos. Lilia smiled and gave a mock wave before loping off towards the park. She seems nice, I observed to Cornelia. Yes, just what every embassy needs, an Icelandic Canadian superwoman. Cornelia muttered something about ginger ale and excused herself, then turned and wobbled down the sidewalk towards her staff quarters. I spent the rest of the day immersing myself in Brussels. I visited La Morsubite, the bar Lilia had mentioned, which is one of my favorite spots in Brussels. It's an ancient Bruxellois drinking hole near the Grand Place, named after a Brussels drinking game that translates as sudden death. They make their own Brussels-style lambic beer and flavor it with cassis, raspberry, and peach. It's easy to drink too much of this concoction, which can lead, in my personal experience, to excessively vigorous debates about the Belgian Congo with the people at the next table. However, as my wife Elizabeth pointed out after that incident, at least my vitamin C was fully topped up. The next morning, as I walked to the mission, I felt fully acclimatized to Brussels. I approached the mission with the same sense of excitement I enjoyed on my first posting. Brussels seemed bright and alive. The morning sun brought out the colors in the stone buildings, and the tramcar bells and the smell of strong coffee wafting out of the sidewalk cafes put a spring in my step. There's a reason why no poet has ever written about the sound an Ottawa tire makes in slush, or how the bus exhaust swirls along Sussex Drive. I was excited about slipping into Fanshawe's swivel chair, prizing open the big safe, and reading my way into my new dossiers. I also looked forward to talking to Julian, Kennedy, and Cornelia to see how we would divide the work. I took the elevator to the fifth floor, where I met my new assistant, Lucille. She told everyone she was in her mid-thirties, but I guess she was around a decade older. She was a battle-hardened, divisional secretary from the Quebec side of the river, and dressed in a way that complied with departmental guidelines, but still made the wives of Anglo Foreign Service officers nervous. Before the department, she'd worked for the owner of the Gatineau Major Junior Hockey Team. She had a perfect smoker's rasp in both languages. Lucille showed me the code to get into the reception area where the local Belgian staff worked, and then the code to get into the secure zone. I was soon ensconced in my new office. As I expected, the political counselor's safe contained armfuls of weighty, complex, and almost incomprehensible dossiers, stored safely in the department's red classified folders. A number dated from my earlier posting, but, while thicker, appeared no closer to successful resolution.
I knew I should be planning a series of political reports that would dazzle Ottawa with the mission's insights on key European issues and their implications for the national interest. Instead, all I could think about was whether anyone would notice if I lost the combination and the safe was never opened again. I flipped through a folder on the impact of the Cyprus conflict on Turkey's membership negotiations with the EU. Several of the telexes were written by officers I knew well, including one who had recently retired after a career of writing similarly thoughtful documents. It reminded me of my friend in Caracas, who was updating his embassy's annual 20-page piece on the Venezuelan economy. On the second-to-last page, he wrote, The first person to read the sentence will be given a bottle of champagne. No one ever called. If any Ottawa decision-maker really cared about the Venezuelan economy, they were probably Googling back issues of The Economist. I logged out to Fanshawe's computer to make sure it worked, and checked the secure Signet C5 terminal. Both were just as clunky and annoying to use as in Ottawa. I also found Fanshawe's well-thumbed copy of Creative Belgian Cuisine. Sadly, it was under a pile of healthy diet books. I quickly dumped these behind the political counselor's napping sofa. Fanshawe's desk sported a number of packages addressed to Smedling from his secretary in Ottawa. Poor Smedling. He probably mailed himself all those extras he needed for an enjoyable posting. In his case, it was probably guidebooks to Belgian triathlons and heart rate monitors that worked with European voltages. I scrawled arrows on the parcels, pointing to the return address, wrote, Wish you were here, Cornelia, on the biggest, and tossed them into the outbox for Ottawa. Fanshawe's office stereo was adequate. I recalled him being an instrumental jazz kind of fellow, and found that he was repatriated without having taken his Wynton Marsalis and Oscar Peterson discs with him. He also had a smattering of Brahms and Beethoven. I opened my briefcase and placed my iPod with my travel collection of Bach and Mozart piano concertos on the shelf. I seemed to have figured out how to synchronize the right playlists before I left Ottawa and put on Glenn Gould's Goldberg variations. When Gould made his magnificent debut in Moscow in 1957, at the height of the Cold War, it was our embassy in Moscow that made it possible. It's a sentimental favorite of mine, since one of my early mentors served in Moscow and helped organize the concert. Organizing a concert doesn't sound like much today, but at the time it represented a small, but distinct, and undeniable contribution to avoiding the nuclear annihilation of mankind. Then I opened the file on my new SQ, which means staff quarters for any readers who haven't had the Canadian government pay for an expensive flat in a European capital. It turned out that the housing section had several vacant flats in a nearby building. No one had told housing that cuts were coming, and they had signed long-term leases they couldn't get rid of. I was assigned number 31, but noticed that the spare key was marked number 21. This was good news. I'd be able to loot the other empty unit if the previous occupant of mine had done something typical, like take all the light bulbs back to Ottawa with him. I closed the dossier and began to search for the last missing element of a successful posting. Where, I asked myself as I ransacked the office, was Fanshawe's lunch budget. Finally, I found it. The balance was enormous. There were no fine granola restaurants in Brussels, and gout-ridden Fanshawe had hardly spent a penny of his entertainment allowance for the current fiscal year. I was as thrilled as an American senator finding a commie in the State Department. The irony of where I found the lunch budget was, if I may say so, delicious. It was under a pile of rice cakes and inside a book entitled An Expat's Guide to Eating in Brussels Without Gaining 25 Pounds, with a sinister-looking Englishwoman on the back cover. I kept a moment of silence out of respect for Fanshawe's last few months of gout-stricken agony in Brussels, cut off from the tender care of Jean-Christophe. He's the legendary maitre d'hôtel at my favorite Brussels restaurant, La Reine d'Afrique. He has helped countless rotations of Canadian diplomats deploy their hospitality budgets in the public interest. I dumped the rice cakes behind the sofa, 
although I kept the partly eaten box of Belgian chocolates hidden underneath. I hurried to the phone to arrange a lunch, since Ambassador Glostrom was threatening to have a staff meeting to discuss Can Do Canada and had made a point of inviting me. The Prime Minister's announcement of the Can Do Canada trade mission had surprised the mission as much as it had me. Planning these visits is always a spirit-sapping affair, so an emergency morale builder with an old friend would be just the thing. Camille was first on my list. I remembered one of our debates over her book on Nestle Road. He was Tsar Alexander's leading diplomat, restoring monarchical regimes and redrawing the map of Europe after the Napoleonic Wars. To Camille, he was the ultimate reactionary. I, however, couldn't fully suppress a sense of admiration for a man who played the diplomatic game so well at a time when skillful diplomacy still mattered. If he went back in time and replaced Nestle Road with Dorf, our head of Europe branch, the result would probably be some badly worded PowerPoint slides sparking wars across Europe and millions of deaths. I dialed Kemi's number and asked in Russian to speak with Count Nesselrode. I know only one person who would like to talk to Nesselrode, she said with a laugh. But she seemed delighted to hear from me and, luckily, was free for lunch. The posting was going well so far. I considered skipping Glostrom's meeting since, as political counselor ad interim, I hoped to be involved as little as possible in the Can Do Canada trade mission. Nonetheless, it would be polite to drop in and introduce my suddenly-arrived self to my new mission colleagues. I called Jean-Christophe and told him that we would have to limit the lunch to two hours due to a very unimportant meeting. I recalled my first lunch with Camille. It was in Ouagadougou in Burkina Faso. She charmed me instantly, and I even began to look forward to meetings about our tedious dispute over flags and seating plans for the Quebec delegation at a meeting of La Francophonie. The machinations of the Quebec delegation required several lunches to sort out, and Camille and I had such wonderful conversations that, even though these were professional lunches, I seldom told Elizabeth about them. Maybe we all would have been better off if Elizabeth had left me for a jogging economist then. That was also around the time I got an unexpected job offer to leave the Foreign Service. I'd been working on African debt relief, and even though I didn't know much about finance, the local IMF analyst always used to take me out for drinks and ask which African governments I thought actually had the political support to implement some new tax or budget cut they were negotiating. He called me from a bank in London a year later and offered me a job as a political risk analyst on their emerging markets debt desk, a job of which I only had vague notions. I saw him profiled in the Financial Times a decade later as one of the bank's youngest managing directors, and again during the financial crisis when his bank had to be bailed out. I wonder if Elizabeth would have left me if I was making millions deciding when to buy or sell Nigerian bonds. Anyway, I should tell you what Camille and I ordered at La Reine d'Afrique. Belgians are obsessed with food, and often open conversations by asking what you had for dinner. Jean-Christophe carries it to extremes, even for a restaurateur. If I didn't share with you in detail what we ate for lunch, he might start seating me in that drafty corner he reserves for Henry Kissinger. The latter failed to mention La Reine d'Afrique in his magnum opus, Diplomacy. Some might consider Kissinger's secret bombing of Cambodia to be a bigger crime, but not Jean-Christophe. Camille and I began with a pair of playful amuse-bouche, followed by a velouté du potager au homard fine for the soup course. For our main plates, I took the pigeon, and Camille chose the pavé d'elbeau à la fondue de champignons. It being a business lunch, we held ourselves to one abstemious bottle of wine, a Pouligny Montrachet. Cheeses, coffee, and the odd chocolate swan followed. Camille told me the latest gossip from the French mission, and then, since the Canadian mission was too boring to have gossip, we caught up on old times. She told me about the latest drama surrounding her ancient black Citroën BX, whose space-age French styling somehow appealed to her. I always thought it looked like a shuttlecraft in a 1970s science fiction movie. 
Apparently, she had taken it to a new Polish mechanic after its latest breakdown, prompting an explosion from her previous Belgian mechanic, who didn't think a Pole could ever truly understand a Citroën. This was ironic, considering that the French joked the Citroën was designed to be so simple that even Belgians could repair it. She also told me about the book she was researching on French foreign policy during the time of Metternich, a golden age of statecraft, when the only question about how to deal with citizen protests was to decide between ordering the army to use grape shot or a cavalry charge. We also caught up on old friends. I told her that Elizabeth and I had separated. She didn't seem surprised, which I must admit was the most troubling of all the reactions I got when I shared the news with people. She asked about Lefranc, who was my first ambassador to Africa. Lefranc and I had become good friends over the years, and I related how Lefranc had retired and suffered from heart trouble. He lived under a form of scotchless house arrest with his oldest daughter, who was a big wig with our electronic eavesdropping agency in Ottawa. Lefranc stored his scotch at my place and often came over for a drink in the evening. We had evolved an elaborate telephone word code that had so far avoided being cracked either by Lefranc's daughter or her wily teenage girls. We didn't talk about Lefranc for long, however. Like Julian, Kennedy, and apparently everyone in Brussels, Camille seemed to have become fascinated by heavy oil. I suppose you've been dragged into this tar sands oil tanker affair, she asked. I wondered what affair she was talking about. The Prime Minister prefers that we call it oil sands, I replied, trying not to sound evasive. It sounds less messy. Yes, he's from Calgary, isn't he, said Camille. We talked about the Prime Minister's close ties to the oil industry and how Alberta already produced more oil than most Middle Eastern countries. It was strange to listen to Camille talk about Calgary. Most French people don't even know Calgary exists, or if they do, they think of it as an English-speaking sort of Timbuktu. Once in a Paris taxi, the news mentioned a figure skating event in Calgary. At the next light, my driver asked me if I knew what a Calgary was. Camille continued, If you start exporting a million barrels a day of tar sands, oil sands, I corrected, and don't forget that on a well-to-wheels basis, our oil is cleaner than most European water. We have an independent report that says so. Kemi rolled her eyes in an expressive Parisian way at our independent report. Whatever. If Canada starts exporting a million barrels a day of oil sands oil to Europe, that will have an enormous impact on the market here. She told me about how the Russians wanted to export oil to Europe from their new fields in Yamal on the Arctic coast, where the big French oil company had a huge co-venture, and that the Middle Eastern countries didn't want more competition from Canada. The European Union was in the middle of debating whether Canadian oil would be declared ultra-high carbon because it took so much extra energy to extract and refine compared to regular oil. They too had an independent report that reached the opposite conclusion to our independent report. An ultra-high carbon designation would mean extra carbon taxes on Canadian oil. That would basically kill plans to import it, concluded Kemi. Which is what the Russians would like? I asked. Of course! And our oil company too, and the Algerians and Libyans, and everyone else around the Mediterranean were trying to keep happy. I must have looked puzzled, since she elaborated. So they don't send us so many refugees, and their secret services help us keep track of all the Islamic terrorists in Paris. And then there's the Greens, she continued. They're completely unmanageable. She gave a gesture of exasperation. It was clear that oil and gas were on the top of meeting agendas in Brussels, from the Council of Ministers to the European Commission to the member state missions. The sanctions on Russia for its Ukrainian adventure so far only affected a few Kremlin-linked businessmen and raising capital for new projects. Trade in oil and gas was still a big deal. Some Europeans liked it this way, since plentiful and relatively cheap energy was good for the economy. The sanctions even improved Europe's bargaining power with the Russians. The big French oil company, with its billions invested in Russia, was pushing this line strongly in Paris and Brussels. On the other hand, others wanted harsher sanctions on the Russians after what they'd done in Crimea and eastern Ukraine. 
Camille made a charming sort of French hand gesture suggesting everyone had gone completely mad about oil. She said that Canada did have a few friends in Europe, since many people saw Canadian energy as a way of being less dependent on the Russians. On the other hand, political opposition to the tar sands was also growing. Have the Greens also figured out where Calgary is? I asked. Yes, where have you been, McGregor? She said the Greens loved protesting Canadian oil, since we didn't play dirty like the Russians. She reminded me of the European activists who spent a month in a Russian jail after they tried to board a Russian oil rig in the Arctic Ocean. Maybe you should arrest more Greens and send them to the Yukon, she suggested. I nodded. It was an appealing idea. Jean-Christophe materialized beside the table to inquire how we were enjoying our pigeon and fish. Camille asked him if he'd been seeing more oil executives in his restaurant. Absolument! From all the countries, even a monsieur from Calgary was here yesterday. Jean-Christophe leaned closer and lowered his voice to rasp with visceral contempt. He asked for ketchup to go with his steak. If even Jean-Christophe knew where Calgary was, there had to be something going on. I'd heard about the proposed pipeline from Alberta to eastern Canada, but assumed this was for eastern Canadian consumption. Exporting a million barrels a day to Europe by tanker from some oil terminal in New Brunswick would transform our trade with Europe. I didn't have to ask Elizabeth's annoying new boyfriend at the Department of Finance to know that oil exports to Europe would create tens of thousands of jobs across the country and billions in extra tax revenues for the government. It would be especially good news for the Prime Minister. Albertan oil exports to Europe would create pipeline jobs in his home province and also in marginal constituencies across the country, benefiting his political supporters in the oil business and giving him lots of tax money to spend on vote-buying schemes in the next election. Best of all, it would force the opposition to choose between the environment and the economy. He couldn't lose. Are you here for the Can-Do Canada trade mission? asked Camille, carrying on the conversation as I stared into space, thinking about the Prime Minister in Albertan Oil. Filling in for Fanshawe, he's got gout. Oh, said Camille, looking a bit puzzled. I heard you were leading Can-Do Canada. I was flummoxed for a second. Who could have been talking to Camille about me and Can-Do Canada, especially about me leading it? Well, I'm sure I'll be involved, I said. The Prime Minister just announced it. The agenda covers all the Canadian classics. Asbestos, Frankenstein canola, clear-cut lumber, furry animals, and baby seals. Can-do reactors and... Can be interrupted. Those are all... What is the English word for canard? Canard, I replied. No, only you would use that word. Something about a fish. Red herring, I asked. Exactly. All those other things are red herrings. Can-do Canada is all about the tar sands. You exaggerate, I said. We're not the French or even the English. Machiavelli is not required reading in the Canadian Foreign Service. She shrugged in her French way. Then why did your Prime Minister tell our President at the last G20 that oil was your number one priority with Europe? That's it for episode four. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Tar Sands Diplomat. I hope you liked it. Check your iTunes feed next week for episode five. For more information on the podcast or to leave a comment, visit keithhalliday.com or send me an email at khalladayattarsandsdiplomat.com. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend or leave a review on Amazon. <laughs>